Um, we're going to jump right in. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. If you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor for Riverwood. And as Jake said, we're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. We are up to uh, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have most of the scripture on the screen, so you're going to be able to read along. Uh, we just really think your learning is going to be enhanced with your own copy. So either stop by our resource table afterwards and pick up a paper copy, and that would be our gift to you, or download a Bible to your phone and feel free to use that uh, on Sundays uh, when you come back. Uh, we're going to be doing verses 1 through 19 today. Acts 12, 1 through 19. So as we get ready to read these 19 verses, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, dive into your holy scriptures, I pray that you would be our teacher. Uh, this would not just be about what I have prepared, but that it would be what you uh, want us to hear. Uh, so Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to the hearts and minds uh, of, of everyone that is here. I, I still think it's uh, a bit ridiculous to think that I, as one person, am able to craft a sermon to fit every person's individual needs. Uh, so Lord, that's why I need you to do what only you can do. That, that I would be a conduit, but that, that what you have for your people, that they would hear this. That the, those who are hurting would be comforted. That those who are feeling broken would be mended. That those who are uh, just a bit apathetic would be awakened. Uh, that, that those who uh, have doubts would be reassured. That those who don't know you would find you. That, Lord, you would accomplish something incredible today. Because uh, I believe that will be for your glory as it is for the joy of these people. So open the ears and hearts of everyone who's, who's connecting uh, with this today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. All right, start in Acts 12, start, uh, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he, Herod, seized him, James, I mean, seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people to kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, by, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And the angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, he, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Well, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So here in Acts chapter 12, we get this remarkable story of Peter's miraculous escape from prison. It's so remarkable, it's almost unbelievable. It's the kind of passage that skeptics look at and go, yeah, right, there's no way. And I mean, I get it. Because even Peter himself didn't think that these things were really happening. He thought this was just a dream. Remember, he had this big dream in Acts chapter 10. So he's just assuming God is giving him another dream. So he's probably wondering, oh, what what is God going to show me through this? Until suddenly he's out in the street, the angel disappears and he realizes, oh, oh, wait, this this is real. I'm like really here. And he is stunned just as much as the skeptic would be stunned at the reality of this story. Now, I've heard a number of sermons on this passage. And several of them have centered on verse 5. So if your Bible's still open there, look at verse 5 with me. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The idea is that the reason Peter has this miraculous escape in verses 6 through 19 is because of the earnest prayer of the church. Now, I I will admit I had a a moment of doubt. I I was wondering, like, am I remembering this correctly? Have I really heard several sermons, or was it just one really good one? And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go and see what others have preached, but mostly looking at sermon titles. And so I went on YouTube, I typed in the search bar, sermons on Acts 12, 1 through 19. And here are some of the sermon titles. Now, some of them, no surprise, they're about the events that took place. One was, When Chains Fell Off. Another, God Delivers Peter. A third one, Peter Miraculously Delivered. But the majority were showing that they were more about verse 5. One was called Earnest Prayer. And they just took it right out of of verse 5. Another was called How to Get God to Hear Me. Another was The Amazing Power of Prayer. What Happens When We Pray? And then another one was called Knock Knock, and another one was called Keep Knocking. It it was pretty obvious in the the top, you know, 20, 30 results, whatever came up, that the majority of them focused on verse 5 and this idea of earnest prayer. And I actually think that's really wise. Because if there's anything that the church in America needs, it's earnest prayer. If there's anything that the believer in Jesus needs in their life, it's earnest prayer. The word earnest could be translated fervent, intense, even constant. Now, some of you are familiar with the Bible enough that when you hear constant prayer, you're thinking of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, pray continually. 
But that means there's a chance that you don't like that verse because you know you don't pray continually. And now suddenly we see that the church was praying earnestly and we hear that there's a bunch of pastors out there who are preaching. We need to engage in earnest prayer and we don't like this either because we don't pray earnestly. We pray casually. We pray occasionally. We pray doubtfully. We pray pathetically. Now, maybe some of you are holier than me and your prayer life is vibrant all the time. So I'm going to let you know what it's like for us normal, non-holy people. I have had seasons in my life when my prayers seem earnest, fervent. But then in my earnestness, I pray for something and God doesn't answer it. He, he doesn't answer it in the way I want or in the timing that I want. And it starts to fill me with some doubt. Leading me to a place where it's like, well, why bother praying? If God's not going to answer and give me what I want. And suddenly, instead of being earnest in prayer, it becomes just occasional in prayer and apathetic in prayer and weak in prayer. And yet here we are being told, pray earnestly. How do you go about praying earnestly? That's why I am so thankful that there are pastors out there telling their churches, telling Jesus followers, pray earnestly. Because it's something we need. But as you can tell by my sermon title, fully trusting God, that I'm not centering on verse 5. I think that would be a very, very good sermon. Probably could have, should have done an entire sermon using verse 5 as the center point. It's just that when I was reading through this, something else jumped out at me. Now, maybe it jumped out because it's just where I'm at right now in life. But my greater hope is that it jumped out at me because there's at least one of you that needs to hear this. That if you don't get anything else from the rest of the sermon, hopefully you now realize, okay, there's at least verse five. I can go and study that and I can pray that God would help me grow and be earnest in prayer. And if that's what you walk away with, fantastic. Today's a win. But there's someone here that you need to hear the rest of this. Because embedded within this amazing story of Peter's rescue is a very uncomfortable and yet absolutely crucial doctrinal truth. Some of us, we avoid it. Some of us, we try to work around it. Some of us, it's what causes us to walk away from a church or walk away from the faith. And yet we must confront it if we are going to get to a place where we fully trust God. So what is this uncomfortable and yet crucial doctrine. Now, to tell you, I want to tell you a story. In the uh, early days of Riverwood, uh, this wonderful married couple came and visited. They uh, clearly loved Jesus. Uh, there was just a lot of enthusiasm and joy about them. And I'm thinking, man, this would be great to have a couple like this part of our church. And so they came for a few weeks. And then one Sunday, the, the wife asked if she could like talk with me. And so we, uh, we start chatting, and at first I'm thinking, am I going to be doing some sort of like you know, pastoral counseling? But then I quickly caught on that, no, she had some questions about Riverwood and per primarily about me. Basically, she, she was, well, t she said, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And so she shared some of her story. God had, in a sense, miraculously brought her out of a very difficult past, She'd made a lot of really bad decisions. And, and so she hated life, even on the verge of ending her life. 
when God just showered her with his love, showed his beauty and grace, like she just was so overwhelmed, she gives her life to Christ and God floods her heart with joy. And now what she wants is to just celebrate the victory that God gave her through Christ. And so when she shows up on a Sunday, what she wants to hear is that you can have victory. Victory over your sin. Victory over these struggles. Victory over these things. That if you will pray earnestly, God will bring you the miraculous. Then she said to me, she says, Aaron, you preached that a little bit. What I hear though the most is you talk about the pain in life. And when I come on Sunday, I don't need to be reminded about the pain because I see the pain. I experience the pain. I need to be brought out of the pain. When I come on Sunday, I need to be shown that I can have victory over the suffering. And so she was in a sense encouraging me to preach victory. And so I know if, if she were still part of Riverwood and if she had the uh, chance and ability to, to come alongside me, to put together this sermon, I know how she would try to preach this. She would want me to say to you that just as the chains fell off of Peter, the chains of addiction can fall off you. That just as God walked Peter out of that prison, he can walk you out of that really difficult situation. Just as God brought Peter back to the church, God can bring you back to your spouse, back to your kid, back to your parent, back to that broken friendship. God can restore these things and give you victory. Now I want you to hear me clearly. I do believe God can free you from addiction. Don't believe me? Just go read our news and notes from this last week. I believe God can restore relationships. I do believe God can do these things. However, I do not believe God had Peter put in prison and miraculously brought out so that I could tell you a cool sermon on how to get out of debt. Something else is going on here. Something even deeper. I think instead of it just trying to point something to us and we get some little nugget and say, okay, I can have this. I think God is wanting to reveal himself in a bigger and better way and grow your faith. That today isn't about what can I get from God, but rather today is about what does God want you to give to him? Now, in all fairness to the other sermons that were out there on YouTube, who obviously were centered on verse 5, many of them preaching about the miraculous rescue of Peter, we're looking at 19 verses today. 17 of them are about Peter's arrest, imprisonment, escape, and the aftermath. So it makes sense that when you have 19 verses and 17 are all about this, that you'd preach the 17. So maybe I'm the one making the mistake in taking you to the first two. But that's where we have to go to see this uncomfortable and yet absolutely crucial truth. Now, if you look back there at verse 1, you see that it starts off, about that time. Uh, about that time means at the same time as what we just heard. So for those of you who were here, you might remember at chapter 11, we saw that God was exploding. The gospel was on the move to the city known as Antioch. Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about a two weeks worth uh, a walk away. 
And yet when some of the Christians fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem end up in Antioch, some of them not only share the news of Jesus' resurrection with their fellow Jews, some even let the news slip to the Gentiles, the Greeks. And many of them realize this is a miracle. And they too put their faith in Christ. And so we have the very first Gentile church planted. A a revival absolutely just breaks out in Antioch. So much so that because of the persecution happened in Jerusalem, that kind of the headquarters of the global church shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch became an incredibly important, influential church. So you have this revival happening going on. And then Luke wants to remind us of what's going back in Jerusalem. And he says about that time, Herod, the king, Now, some of you, you know your Bible and you've heard of Herod before, but I want you to know that there's three Herods in the Bible, Most of you know Herod the Great. He's the one who was reigning when uh, Jesus was born. Some of you might be familiar with who Herod Antipas was. He was the Herod who was reigning when uh, Jesus was crucified. This Herod is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, and and it's awkward. He's the uncle and the brother-in-law, I mean the nephew and brother-in-law of Herod Antipas. Family reunions must have been weird. But this Herod, he is a consummate politician. When he's in Jerusalem, he is leaning into his Jewishness. He's half Jewish. But when he is in Rome where he was educated, he is fully Roman. And that is what allows him to have such power here. And so out of his power and his desire to be this well-loved politician king, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So he sees the persecution happening against the church. He's like, here's my opportunity. So he jumps in, joins in the persecution, and it makes him even more loved. So what is it he does? He killed James, the brother with John. Uh, the, James, sorry, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It was another way of saying he beheaded him. Now, what are the 17 verses about? The miraculous escape of Peter. So this means... Peter escapes, James does not. One lives, another dies. God gives victory to one apostle, but allows death to another. Why? I'll be honest, I don't know. But I do know it has to come down to, it it is wrapped up within God's sovereignty. In uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, we don't know who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews, but uh, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and go there. Uh, We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, but uh, there's a significant chapter in there. (laughs) this uh, chapter even gets a nickname. Not many chapters in the Bible get a nickname, but this one does. This one gets nicknamed the Hall of Faith. If you're into sports at all like me, you know that many sports have a Hall of Fame. Well, this is the Hall of Faith. This is the author recounting all these great characters from the Old Testament and how they exhibited incredible faith in God. So he starts telling stories about Abraham and his wife Sarah, about their son Isaac, grandson Jacob, about Rahab the prostitute. He's sharing all these amazing stories, recalling the ways they exhibited this amazing faith. And then in verse 32, he says this, And what more shall I say? 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. If you're a guy, you're probably going, wow, that's like a manly passage. I mean, all these great things that happen, they just like exhibited this faith and God does these miracles. They had victory. And then right almost in the middle of the sentence, the author turns. He continues and says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Just like God gave the victory to Peter, but not to James, there were some people who were filled with faith that God did the miraculous. He gave them victory. And for others, he didn't. This really starts making a lot of us uncomfortable. I mean, James was one of the big three. Peter, James, and John. He's like part of the inner circle with Jesus. He's not like the red shirt in Star Trek. This is like Spock getting killed off. Like, no, no, you can't do that. Like, he's important. We know him. I mean, if this is how God treats some of his most ser- loyal servants, why would I serve a God like that? Now, some people might say, but Aaron, James asked for this. You see, back in Matthew chapter 20, James and his brother John approach Jesus. They actually bring their mom along and mom begins the conversation. Mom bows down before Jesus and says, Oh Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you allow my sons to sit at your right hand and your left hand? The places of prominence, the places of power. Now in their mind, they're thinking Jesus is here to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Overthrow Rome, reestablish this as a sovereign nation. And when you, Jesus, assume your throne, man, if my two boys, the sons of thunder... If they could be sitting there, that would be cool. I'd I'd be so honored. But Jesus looks at not mom, but the boys. Says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This cup that he's referring to is the cup of suffering. The cup of God's wrath against sin. It's the cup of pain, the cup of sorrow, the cup of death. This is the cup that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, take this cup from me. Because he knew to drink of this cup was to die on the cross, to go through the pain. So he looks at James and John and is like, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink this cup? Now they want their names in the hall of faith. They want to be men. So they're like, yeah, of course we can. And Jesus, being God, knowing what's going to happen, says, yeah, you're right. You will drink this cup. 
For John, it wasn't to drink a cup of death. It was to drink a cup of isolation where he sent off to the island of Patmos to die in exile. But for James, he drinks the cup in Acts 12. He drinks the cup in verse 2. He drinks and dies. Why? Why did God let James die and yet Peter live? Now, some people would want to respond. Oh, well, Aaron, the answer is right there in the text. In verse 5, that earnest prayer. God answers the prayers of his people. That is why Peter escapes. <laughs> yeah, I saw a head nod. No. You don't think the church was ignoring James? Ah, he'll be fine. No. Like all throughout the book of Acts, we've seen these are people of prayer. And when persecution busts out in Acts chapter 8, people are fleeing for their lives. You bet they are on their hands and their knees. They are praying their faces off. Now, I realize I am making an argument from silence. The text does not say that. But I feel very comfortable and confident to say they were praying for James. You bet they prayed for him. I don't know that they expected him to die. But you bet they prayed for his release, for his safety, that God would work. What's remarkable is that they probably prayed for James. God does not answer their prayer, and yet they still had the audacity in verse 5 to give earnest prayer for Peter. They're way more spiritually advanced than me. Because I pray for something and God doesn't give it, and you start going, well, then why bother? They pray for James, God doesn't answer it the way they want, and yet they continue to pray. Why? Because they have an understanding of the sovereignty of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. And he lets them know that there are times when God doesn't say yes to your prayers. He, he shares how he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. Some scholars think that his eyesight was going. Maybe it was like some pain. We don't know exactly what it was. But he admits he prayed three times for God to remove it. And God said no. And think about it. It's not that he's punishing Paul. It's not that Paul didn't have enough faith. It's not that Paul didn't say the magic words in prayer. I mean, this is the guy that God used to bring the gospel to the nations and write so much of the New Testament that we are benefiting from now. And yet when God says no to him... God basically says, hey, my grace is sufficient. Like, I am enough for you. Could God have healed him? Yes, and Paul knew that. And yet God basically is saying, but Paul, I have something better. And that is why we see Paul then say, and so I will glorify, I will boast all the more about my weakness. Like, if God can somehow use my pain to accomplish something great? So be it. How do you get to that place? It means you've got to realize that this life is not all there is, and you have to have an understanding of the heart of God. I, I get it. If this life is all you think there is, you would be very justified to be frustrated with God. 
If, if James thought that this life was all there was, then for God to treat such a loyal servant like that, to let him just get killed off by Herod, it seems cruel. But because this life is not all there is, I have a strong suspicion that when James breathed his first breath in heaven, he said, thank you. How could Paul glorify God when God says, no, I'm not going to remove your thorn in the flesh? Because he knew the heart of God. He knew Jesus went to a cross and died for his sins. Like uh, Jake said uh, in his prayer, reminding us that, that God did not wait for us to clean up our act before Jesus died for our sin. No, Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he loved his enemies. He went to the cross to die for your sin. So if you find yourself doubting the heart of God, you just look at the cross. Paul knew that. And so if God is saying, no, I'm not going to remove this thorn right now, then he can say, okay, I trust you, God. So that's why we need to spend some time in self-reflection. We need to just take a moment because this doctrine for some of us, it's really, really uncomfortable. Some of you, if you just are honest with yourself, taking stock of your, your spiritual life right now, you would have to admit you're getting really casual right now in your faith. You haven't abandoned it. You still know that Jesus died on the cross, still kind of core of your identity, but yet it's a side thing. It's a Sunday thing. And you know this because you can look at your prayers. Your prayers are not earnest. They're apathetic. They're just occasional. They're, they're not intense and fervent. You've, you've gotten casual. Some of you, though, right now, you are mad at God. You are really, really frustrated. Because you don't know why he let your loved one die. You don't know why he's letting you go through this physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. You don't know why he won't give you the job or the spouse or the child. And so you're starting to find yourself doubting his goodness, his power, his existence. So, so you're mad. Some of you, you are, uh, you're avoiding uh, this whole concept. It, it makes you uncomfortable. You don't like the idea that this sovereign God will always do what he knows is best because you have some really good ideas of what you think is the right thing. And so you just avoid it because to confront it and to realize God's going to do what he's going to do, it, it means, it makes you feel like, well, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not praying right. And so it sends you into a crisis of faith. And so, so you're just avoiding the whole entire thing so that you can just kind of keep going. And then possibly for a few of you, this concept, this doctrine is what is keeping you from putting your faith fully in God. I had a friend, Zach, that uh, he was looking, searching th out things spiritually. And uh, he started coming to our, our church back in Cedar Rapids, get, got to get involved. But he wasn't willing to commit his life to Christ. And finally, one day we did lunch and, and he shared a number of things that were keeping him back. And one of the things was this idea that God would be in control. You see, he had certain concepts. He was a little bit of a black and white guy. 
And so he has some ideas of what's right and wrong. And yet he's learning some about the Bible and God seems to do things a little differently than what he thinks it should be. And he also looks at some people's life and realizes God might do something that I don't want him to do. And so this doctrinal concept is one of the things keeping him from fully giving his life to Christ. Now he ended up getting over it. Zach is a follower of Christ to this day. But it took a long time for that to come. For some of you, this is what's keeping you. Again, if this life is all there is, I I can get why you're not wanting to put your trust in this God. And if you don't understand the heart of God for you, I, I get why you would be hesitant. But no matter which category you're in, whether you're casual in your faith right now, whether you're mad, whether you're just avoiding, or, or whether you're just holding back. I think someone here needs to hear God ask you this question. Will you fully trust me? Will you trust my heart? Will you trust my plan? Will you trust my wisdom? Will you trust my sovereignty? Now, I do not pretend to stand up here and be the voice of God. I'm just one man stumbling through this thing of faith just like the rest of you. But I do know this. God loves you. God knows you. God is for you. And so you can trust him. I don't know why he decided to let James die and Peter live. I don't know why he let some of the ancient heroes of the faith see these miracles and others be tortured and killed. I don't know why that person in your life just seems to be so incredibly blessed while you continue to suffer. All I know is that God does love you He is for you. He's able to work through the pain that what Satan intends for your destruction, God can work for your joy and his glory. That is why he's inviting you to fully trust him. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help us to get there. I pray right now for those who have been struggling with this. There's something they're holding on to. They're not letting go. They don't want to surrender this to you because when they admit it, They don't trust you. They don't trust that you really are good. They don't trust that you really are powerful. They don't really trust that there's more than this, just this life. Their their eyesight and their heart is set so much on the things of this earth and it is causing them to doubt the things of heaven. Heavenly Father, if, if nations cannot keep your gospel from coming in, I just pray you would break through their walls and you would come in that right now there would just be a beautiful breaking, that you would shatter this so that they might fully trust you. I believe this is where they're gonna find their greatest joy. So Lord, I pray you'd help them to open up their fists, to let go of the past, to forgive those who have hurt them, to forgive themselves of their mistakes, to even forgive you for letting them go through this. Because I believe you have something for them. And they aren't going to get to experience it if they're fighting against you.
So Father, help us to trust you, to trust in your sovereignty, to trust in your wisdom, to trust that your heart is good and holy and pure and it is for us. And help us to become like the early church, to become a bit like Paul, that when we pray for something and you don't answer it the way we want, we can still continue to pray earnestly to trust you, to trust that when you say no or when you say wait, it's actually for our good because your plan is actually better than our plan. So Father, I pray as we pray, right now your Holy Spirit would be mending hearts, would be calming souls, would be bringing rest to your people. So Father, right now, just hear us as we pray. And Heavenly Father, I pray for those that have never surrendered their life to you. Whether they're in this room sitting at a computer or a phone and they've got earbuds in listening to the podcast they're realizing you've drawn them to this moment because you love them you are for them and I pray you would help them to realize that they don't have the right to tell you what to do instead you their loving creator is inviting them to follow you and trust you knowing that it is following you that they will find their greatest freedom it is in you they will experience the greatest peace it is in you they will finally have everlasting joy so father help them right now to surrender as well As we move into our time of communion, I want to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus walked into that garden with his disciples, he asked them to pray earnestly. And they were just like us, they didn't. They fell asleep, they gave up, while Jesus is over there crying out his eyes. As he's sweating blood, as he knows what is ahead, and he is saying what John and James didn't know take this cup from me but Jesus didn't stop there because Jesus knew the plan he knew God's wisdom he knew why he had come he was to go to the cross and so yes part of him knows how hard this is going to be and so he's like take this cup from me then he says, but not my will, but yours. Because God is sovereign. He has a perfect plan. And that even the things that are designed for our destruction, even designed for our death, cannot stop and thwart God's heart for you and what he is able to do through you. My friend, she wants me to preach victory. There is victory, you guys. But that victory so often comes through the suffering, through the trial, through the pain. We would not be able to celebrate the resurrection without the cross. 
So if right now you're bearing your own cross, something's difficult, something's hurting, it's heavy, bring it. Bring it. And throw it at the feet of Jesus. If you have been wrestling with doubt, bring it. Bring it to God. He can handle it. If you've been angry, bring it. If you have just been lost, bring it. Because as you bring it to him and you lay it at his feet, you create the opportunity for you to experience your escape and to see God do what only he can do, but it won't come without you coming to him. So I invite you to come to this table. If you are a first-time guest with us at Riverwood, we celebrate an open table, meaning if you have put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to participate. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're just not sure about this thing, it's, that's fine. We're not gonna kick you out, ignore you. We actually want you here. Some of the people that are around you were on a journey like you are. And God's brought them to a place of understanding this gospel. So we want you with us so that you might understand this too. But if you're not sure yet about this whole Jesus story, I'm gonna just ask that you politely not come to this table. Not because we're trying to keep something from you. Instead, we would rather you spend the moment praying and asking God, is it all true and real? Did Jesus really come to die on the cross for my sin? And if you realize it is true, that you take the moment to give it all to him. But if you are a follower, if you've given your life to him, then come. I'll invite the middle aisles to come into the center and just come their way around to take the elements and come back to their seats. And after the middle sections are done, our outside aisles can do the same. You can go around the back, come up and accept this. If you need prayer for anything, Ed and I are going to just position ourselves at the corners. So Ed will be over there. I'm going to head over to this corner. We'd love to just pray for you, whatever it is. But this is our chance to surrender to him and to say, God, I want to trust in your sovereignty. Help me to believe. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.